Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and cosmetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend David Segal, an entrepreneur and an aesthetic business mentor. Each episode of IA showcases unfiltered conversations with guests from around the world. In a sometimes disjointed industry, IA aims to help educate and connect our global community to raise the bar for both our businesses and our patients. To further support and educate our listeners, we offer a range of additional resources under our IA Patreon subscription service. This caters for injectors and business owners of all levels and includes interactive live Zoom sessions, webinars, hints and tip videos, private chat groups and exciting future content to come. To subscribe to IA Patreon, head to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon or click the link in our podcast description. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. 200. We made it. <laughs> we made it to 200. Without you killing me. Or vice versa. There's been there's been close moments though. Yeah, congratulations, buddy. <laughs> congratulations uh, to you too. A big moment. We were going to pop champagne, but it's seven in the morning here in Sydney, so, so I've got, <laughs> it didn't feel appropriate. Well, I've got two. Co- never stopped you. So, guys so we've before. got a ton two, of coffee. Two caffeine, <laughs> caffeine at the ready. Caffeine yeah. at the ready. And uh, listeners will know who our two hundredth special guest yep. is. But welcome, Dr. Arthur Swift. Thank you so much for making time for us. Um, how have you been uh, in the last couple of weeks? Because you've been a busy man. You were in Paris, you were here, you were there. So tell us about your, your couple, of, couple of weeks. Well, right off, let me congratulate you guys on your 200th episode of Inside Aesthetics. I think it's fantastic. And I feel extremely privileged and honored to be on the show. So thanks again for the invite. Uh, yeah, I've been moving around. I, I'd never like to stay in one place too long. You know, Then the creditors will catch you. So you just keep <laughs> moving all the time. Yeah. <laughs> So you, you just keep moving. Yeah, we were at IMCAS in Paris. And then before that, I did a stint in Dubai. Uh, then my actual, my Swift Beauty Symposium in Dubai for the first time with Raja Kila. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, and we just keep moving. I just finished one now actually in Miami, uh, where I'm calling you from right now. So we did this past weekend, we had a Swift Beauty Symposium for 122 delegates. There were some from Australia. There were some from as ah. uh, far away as uh, Bangladesh. And we had uh, people coming in from the Middle East, the Far East. It was really a lot of fun. It was great. That's fantastic. And that brings us on to, well, we would have already announced our winner by the time this podcast goes out. But uh-huh. let's just reference how crazy things well, Yeah, went. we found a, a little bit of a competition that got a slight bit of traction, a little bit... <laughs> It went completely bananas. Um, you know, we've done competitions with Julie Horn and Raj and, and a few others, and they've been big, right. and we thought we're never going to be able to top those. And then, honestly, it just went absolutely bananas. Our WhatsApp and uh, Instagram, just it didn't stop for about, I, I uh, reckon, a week and a half. Uh, my, my battery on my phone kept going flat because yeah. of all the notifications. <laughs> Yeah. So what we're going to do at the end, I haven't actually told you this yet, Arthur, I'm going to get you to go to a website on your phone called Random Number Generator. And when you click a button, it will just give us a number and then that will be our winner. So make sure you have your phone cool. handy and we'll, we'll choose yeah, the winner at the end. That's no problem. And sure. what we'll do at the end, we'll just, we'll take a screen grab of, uh, of this and then we'll put it up on our Instagram. So to prove that we didn't, you know, fudge the winner, you chose the winner. It wasn't us. Sure, no problem. Should we just maybe talk about what was included in the competition? Like, what, what yeah, are people actually sure. winning? Well, okay. So, well, firstly, it was flights to, well, from wherever you are in the world, all the way to Los Angeles, where Arthur will be doing his next masterclass. Um, then, of course, you get access to the masterclass itself, which is three days. 
Uh, it's amazing. I've looked at the content. I'm a bit gutted that I'm not going. To be completely honest, I will come. I will come again, Arthur. And so you uh, mean if you if you win, it's going to be a setup yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, just make sure you choose 536 because that was my one. That was my test one. <laughs> and of course, you've got Sebastian Cotafana there with you teaching. So it's, a, right. it's an amazing uh, event. And of course, we'll put you up in a fancy hotel as well. So pretty cool prize. And thank you again for, you know, for donating the ticket as well. It's amazing. Again, my pleasure. Yeah, that was great. I'm glad it, it stimulated a lot of interest. It definitely did. Now, why don't we get into the background to you, Arthur? Because every, everyone knows you or every injector should know you. And if they don't, I don't know where they're living. But we, we sort of want to go into the history. And of course, you are actually a plastic surgeon. Most people know you as an injector and you're talking about injectables. Correct. But correct. How, yeah, how... My background is plastic surgery. That is correct. Yeah, and, and how and why did you get into that? What inspired you and, and when was uh, it? You know, things happen in life that you sort of might have plans for, but it just never seems to work out that way. I mean, I knew I was going into medicine. I actually came from a background of music and it was either music or medicine. So I had oh. to make my decision. I was going to be a rocker. Or was I going to be a doctor? Yeah. (laughs) So I ended up choosing the medical side, uh, went through medicine, realized that right away that I wanted to be more in the surgical aspect than on the the, uh, medical clinical aspect of it. And I was looking around for a specialty that I thought fit what I was really interested in. And I decided to do trauma surgery. Very similar to actually Sebastian. Sebastian is a trauma surgeon, actually. Yeah. Originally trained. So I came down right here where I am right now in Florida to do a, an elective as a medical student for two months in trauma surgery. When I arrived, uh, the head of the trauma surgery unit looked at me and said, you're here for two months? And I said, that's correct. He says, are you a masochist? Why? You can't do two months. I said, well, why is that? He said, well, because it's 36 hours on, 12 hours off. You'll melt after two or three weeks. The most we allow is three weeks or four weeks. You better find something else to do here. And I knew nothing. I knew nothing about plastic surgery at the time and uh, this was in 1979 okay wow. so uh, i went ahead and i was asking for different specialties and looked around and i <clears throat> bumped into the plastic surgical specialty and said hey would you like to have a medical student on your service over here and they said sure we can always use an extra pair of hands and i said great and that was my first exposure to plastics and the guy who was running the program over here was a dr millard who was really world famous or was world famous and still is world famous, but he passed away, unfortunately. But nonetheless, that program was the program, which I never realized. I just happened into it. I was a medical student on it, and I was fascinated with the plastic surgery. One day we were up working on the face. The next day we were on the stomach, the breast, the legs. Like every day was a different agenda. And I said, now that is interesting because you don't get bored doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. So that stimulated my interest in plastic surgery with this guy who was known as the father of modern plastic surgery. I went back and finished my med school. And then I came back down again to do a fellowship after I finished my, my plastic surgical rotation. So, um, you know, it, it was a situation that I guess it was ordained. It just happened that way. I got into plastics uh, right out of general surgery. And then I came down to Miami, did my year of, of training here with with Millard and, and as they say, the rest is history. There you go. Um, I just want to get back to the music for a second. As, as a fellow musician, <laughs> Arthur, I'd, I'd, like, I'd, like, you I'd like to know what <laughs> instrument did you play? How, what sort of was, music were you playing? I, yeah. Yeah, I How, was key- keyboards. I was key- keyboards. Yeah. In fact, at the age of 16, we had, uh, I was trained in classic piano. Uh-huh. So I went through McGill University over here, actually graduated at the age of 14 in, in classic piano. 
Uh, and then, of course, along came the 1960s and rock and roll, and I was dragged over to the rock and roll side, believe it or not, and um, joined a group that was a band that was playing locally in Montreal in pubs. And then we got an offer in 1972, so I would have been, I was born in 55, that would have made me 17 years of age, the, to go to Japan, to Sapporo, Japan, for the World's Fair, to play over there. And that was wow. my decision point. Do I go the rock and roll route? And do I go the medicine route? And obviously, I made the wrong decision because otherwise, <laughs> I'd be in a penthouse now, banged out on coke, and waiting for my private plane to arrive. But <laughs> instead, I decided, <laughs> I decided to go for medicine. <laughs> so, um, and that was it for 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 my musical career at that point. I, I just want to know where are the photos that we can find with the long hair, the piercings, uh, the tattoos. <laughs> like where <laughs> where are these situated? The funniest, <laughs> the funniest thing is we have a we have a a newspaper that is in Montreal, which is kind of an underground newspaper that got wind of the fact that I had a musical background when I started my plastic surgical career. I was making a name for myself in Montreal, and they said, could we do an interview on you? And I said, sure. And the first thing they came at me with was, we hear you are a rocker from the old days. And I'm telling you, for the first 20 years of my practice, Anytime you Googled me, that was the article that came up. <laughs> Nothing to do with what I was doing with plastics, but just the fact that I was an old-time rocker. <laughs> there you go. So, and what sort of music do you like listening to today? I mean, like, are we talking like, you know, Billy Joel or like, what, what was the kind of, or heavier than oh, that? You're really da- you're dating me, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, right. I like Billy Joel. Hey. <laughs> yeah, I like it all. I'm, I have very eclectic taste. I mean, if I'm in the operating room, it could be anywhere from, you know, classical, not so much opera, but from classical pieces all the way up to to modern to jazz i listen to everything i love it all and and sorry jake i know you want to jump in do you think there's anything in music that you took across to medicine is there any correlation at all from an artistic perspective <laughs> maybe not just you curious know, you would think so wouldn't you i mean other than the fact that when i go to conferences i uh, i could dance i mean but other than that um you would think that there would be a, a sort of a bridging between being sort of having a musical background and having an artistic sense that way mm. to be able to apply it to the art of, of beauty. Mm. And that's another story in itself because I thought it would give me a, a sort of a leg up on, on aesthetics to understand that I had sort of a little more of an artistic background. But in actuality, I struggled a bit at the beginning. And that's where the whole idea of the beautification and calipers mm. came in was because of the fact that I found that I wasn't, I wasn't achieving aesthetically what I thought I could achieve, you know? And leaning back on the musical background didn't help me. What it did help me was to get through medical school because of the stress of medical school. I would come <laughs> home and just take, take it out on the ivories. You know, yeah. that's what the old story was. Wow. Well, I would argue that Dexterity. you are definitely a rock yeah. star. Yeah. You go around the world <laughs> to audiences praying to you. And, you know, you are, if you know what I mean by the goat, the greatest a, of all time. So come on. It's just a crazy, it's just a crazy, crazy thing. You know, it, it's, it's this quote-unquote celebrity status. I mean, in my own backyard, I'm under the radar. Everything's fine. I still have my practice, my plastic surgical practice. It's a successful practice, but it's, it's local. It's community. And yet, when I head out of town, especially either to Europe or Asia, or if I'm, I'm down under with you guys, it's like, who is this guy? All of a sudden, it's yep. like celebrity status. And I said, come on, it's crazy. You know? That developed because of the fact that there really weren't any mentors in our specialty when I started. Yeah. When I started injecting back in the early 90s, and I mean, I had the advantage of coming from Canada, and that's where Gene and Alistair yeah. 
had come up with the Botox idea or the botulinum toxin idea, um, you know, the Carruthers really put us on the map. I, I tip my hat to both of them every single day because they created a, a whole specialty that just didn't exist before. So when I started back in 92, they had come up with that concept in 91. And I watched it for a year. I said, wow, they're injecting the most powerful neurotoxin in the world into people's faces. I said, <laughs> somebody's going to take a dive on this one. And I watched for a year. Nobody seemed to perish. So I said, okay, maybe it's pretty good. And I started in the 92. So when I started in 92, I didn't have a mentor to go ahead and to lean on to sort of say, well, how do you do this? How do you inject this stuff? You know, it was sort of right out of the gate. You know what they say about the pioneers. We usually take the arrows. I mean, yeah. the <laughs> techniques that I was using at the beginning uh, were really, when you think about them now, they were frightening. It was a, a single needle, a long needle through one injection point, a 10cc reconstitution. Wow. I would go up and across like this on both sides. Patients would walk out all <laughs> swollen like that. And, and, they kept, and they kept coming back. But I didn't have a mentor for that. And so you have to sort of innovate as you're going along. It was because of the fact that I'm, I guess, one of the grandfathers of the specialty. It's rare that you get a chance to be in a specialty and watch it from birth as it grows. That's why I'm so passionate about it. It's like my child, my baby. So when you have that passion and you are the one that's kind of leading the charge, I guess that automatically puts you into this exalted thing that I'm very uncomfortable with, but this sort of celebrity status that, wow, this is the innovator, this is the guru or the legend or whatever. Yeah, legends are from way back when, I guess. <laughs> they, got, they got grandpa here as one of the legends of, of yeah. injectables. You know? So you mentioned that you, you were struggling um, at the very beginning. And I think that could resonate with a lot of our listeners because we've got this very active for sure, community for of sure. people that are always looking. And, uh, you know, they're very privileged today because I've got so many people that we can look up to and ask questions to. But, like, what were the struggles that you were having? And, you know, people who are listening to this are thinking, wow, Arthur Swift struggled at the beginning. So what was that like? What was the sort of… I still struggle. Yeah, right. Okay, well, that's, that's <laughs> it's comforting. A, it's, it's a constant struggle. You know, that's, that's the situation. Yeah, you know… At the beginning, what happened was is that I was I was looking at my results. I mean, we started off, I mean, the companies gave us products and they had a specific parameter of where to use the product. So if we were using toxin, it had to be for the glabella. If we were using filler, it was for the nasolabial fold. So we were kind of limited in stretching our wings and trying to figure things out. So we had to start to expand on our own because there wasn't really any on-label indications for those things at the beginning. My struggles were with the fact that I would look at some of the results that I would get with a patient and I would say, wow, that's, you know, that's really nice. It was the wow effect. You know, that's the interesting thing is the word wow is the same in any language. Wherever I go in the world, <laughs> I said, whenever I'm doing any of these demos and patient holds up a mirror, if they don't say wow, because it's the same word, that's what we're gunning for now. So some of them had the wow effect and some of them had pretty decent results, pretty good. But I couldn't understand what was the difference between knocking it out of the park and, and just getting a very good result. And I wanted to become reliable, consistent, and reproducible in the things that I was doing. And like I said, I had nobody to turn to. I had nobody to ask, well, how do you do this? You know, every other specialty, you think about it, whether it's general surgery or cardiovascular surgery or neurosurgery, it's been around for so long that you always have mentors to be able to guide you. But I had nobody to really turn to to say, well, where am I supposed to put this stuff? <laughs> How am I supposed to do it? So I figured, hmm, you know what? Let me ask 
the smartest person in the world. Maybe they can help me with this problem. And he's been dead for 500 years. So I went back and learned <laughs> as much as I could about Da Vinci. Right. And I figured this is a guy who, to me, was the epitome of half scientist, half artist. Let me look at what he's doing and see if I can apply it somehow to what I'm trying to do. And that took a lot of frustration and a lot of years of sort of just constantly trying to apply it to figure out how can you go ahead and and take the concept that this man, if I can call him a man, I think he was from another planet, mm. that he had and be able to apply it to my specialty. Uh, I started doing that in 2003, and the article that I wrote only came out in 2008 or so. So it took five years of really toying around with it. And my poor family that I was busy, you know, demoing on, my <laughs> wife looked like bruised every single day <laughs> when I was trying this stuff. Um, what ended up happening is that that was the kind of the launch pad for, for me understanding of how I was going to be able to optimize both the experience and the result of my patients. I know we've got a lot of young listeners, a lot of millennials who might go, who the hell is Da Vinci? What did he do? So <laughs> I, I know, I know, but do we want to just, you know, would you want to talk about the Vitruvian man and, you know, his theories on proportions and symmetry and the different parts of the face? Because I, I know there will be some people that are going, what, what are you guys talking about? Really? Right. I think so, potentially. Well, like, you, like you asked, for those people struggling to understand, what happens is, you know, we have a tendency to do a paint-by-numbers type of thing because we're comfortable with it. Mm. You know, it's the type of thing we say, okay, but you can't do a cookie-cutter approach if you really want to create beauty because beauty is an individual thing, and it should be individualized for each patient. So the problem becomes how can you find something, some sort of template that you can work with that can then be modified for each individual face? That was the sort of, that was the stumbling block at the beginning. But Da Vinci was, you know, was from the Renaissance period. He was the artist of, 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 of repute. I mean, this guy, I remember standing up in front of a crowd in Italy. I think it was in Bari, um, for about 600 doctors. And through a translator, I said, you know, Da Vinci wasn't Italian. That didn't go over too well. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to tear me apart. But before they had a chance to get up on stage and tear me, I said, I don't think this guy was even human. How could you, in like, in the 1400s, how could you have designed a helicopter yeah. to fly when man hadn't even thought about flying? I think it was in late 1400s, 1496 or something that he came up with this. And... And I said, this guy had to come from another planet, um, planet because he was so cerebral in the things that he did. Um, and he believed in a divine proportion to everything. When he looked around and looked at things, he found that there was this proportion that was was called divine because, I'll explain that very quickly, was because of the fact that it was one single proportion. It was one single point called the divine section. If you took a straight line, and you divide it into a little piece and a big piece, basically it said the ratio of the little to the big was the same as the big to the entire line. So 1 to 1.6 was the same as 1.6 to 2.6. And that was something that the ancient Egyptians had used to build their pyramids. The ancient Greeks believed in there being beauty through mathematics, this whole thing. And so he had this concept that he applied to his beautiful works of art, whether it was sculpture, whether it was painting. And when I started to realize that, I said, well, how do you apply that to the face? Um, that was the problem. And so using that type of beautiful work, I'm sure that the younger people have heard of the Mona Lisa. Yes. Well, even if you take a look at the Mona Lisa, she is done to the divine proportions. 
uh, to these proportions that he used. He would sketch it out first. So I tried to figure a way to apply that. Now, there was a plastic surgeon from California, a guy named Steve Markoff, who really was the pioneer in using this for facial aesthetics. He was an oral maxillofacial surgeon, and he had developed what's called the golden mask, a mask that he felt applied over the beautiful face because it had all the beautiful golden ratios in it. The criticism of that was the fact it didn't seem to work well with Asians or Afro-Americans, but it seemed to work only on a Caucasian face because he was using a different starting point. And I kind of played with that a little bit to understand what he was after. And then I came across an article written by Steve Hoffling, who was Michael Jackson's plastic oh, surgeon. Uh. He was a guy, from, yeah, a guy from California who wrote an article that said the distance between your eyes doesn't change in adult life unless it's involved with disease. And I said, hmm, wouldn't that be interesting? Wouldn't that be cool if, if you could measure off the eyes of a patient once they're an adult? And then what they come and then do all the other measurements to find the golden ratios on their face so that if they come to see you when they're 40, 50, or 60, you always have the same starting point. It's not changing. Mm. And it was just serendipitous that it happened that way, that I sort of looked into it that way and started measuring all these beautiful faces. In fact, I think I spent three terrible days of my life at a modeling agency measuring as many beautiful women as I possibly oh, could. Must have been my terrible colleagues. for you. And you ignored the men. Yeah, no, you, you, you feel for me there. Oh, don't no. You? <laughs> Someone's got to do and it. I was, I, and I started to see some commonality to it. And then I went onto the internet and started pulling off pictures of all the beautiful faces of the world and seeing that, hey, yeah, there is something to this. It was something that was very exciting for me because, you know, I, I used the icon of beauty in, at that time, which was Angelina Jolie. And I was measuring her face and I said, wow, look at that. The distance between her eyes is one, and the distance from the inside of the eye to her cheek is 1.618. It's exactly the golden ratio. And I remember sitting there in the kitchen and saying, I think I found something. And my wife said, what are you looking at? And I said, I'm looking for these beautiful proportions. And she said, you know, you're such an idiot. But she <laughs> reminds me every day just to keep me on a level ground. She said, you know, that's only, it's only one person. I said, you have, you know, if, how could you apply it if it's just one person? You said, you're right. I said, you're right. So I took 200 photos of, of average people, beautiful people, whatever the story was, put it on the internet and asked people to score it for beauty. And all the beautiful faces that people were looking at had that golden ratio in it. And then I said, now there's something to this. So I was very excited. So when did you come up with the concept of actually having a caliper? Did you make that yourself or, or did, yeah. was that around? Yeah. Yeah, well, the caliper issue, what happened was, is I looked on the internet to find a golden ratio caliper, and the only thing that was available was from the automotive industry. Uh -huh. And it was this five-fingered thing that I think was the same type of thing that that uh, da Vinci probably used 500 years ago. It was sort of like a Pentagon type of thing. But I was so excited, I didn't care. I ordered it, and I got this thing in the mail. It was about this big, and it had all <laughs> these these contraptions and these things sticking out of it. And it came to the Monday morning and I was so excited to try to use it on my first patient that I remember I had it in my drawer in my examining room. And the first patient walked in, I don't even think she got a chance to say good morning. And I said, <laughs> can I measure your face? And she goes, excuse me? <laughs> and I said, I'd love to measure your face because I believe that there's a beautiful proportion and everybody has a beautiful feature or at least a beautiful feature. And there's some beautiful features on your face. Da Vinci believed in beautiful proportions. Can I measure to see how beautiful your face is? And, you know, from that time, which was back in 2008 or seven, 
Uh, I've never been refused. And asking anybody to go ahead and measure their face, that people are interested in finding out, do they have the ideal proportions or can they achieve closer to the ideal proportion? So I reached into my drawer and I pulled out this thing and I looked like Edward Scissorhands coming <laughs> at her with like five different things sticking out. And uh, she kind of recoiled a bit and I said, don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you. And then I realized I needed something a little sexier. Yeah. So we ended up, it took a couple of years, but <clears throat> through a number of six or seven prototypes came out with a, a sexier looking caliper that was more sort of S-shaped. Nothing to do with Swift, but it just had a nice curve to it. And that's the thing that we've been using, and it's actually become quite popular. Can I say the 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 key to it, the the magic of it, is that it takes away any subjectivity. It becomes a very objective, objective. mathematical fact. Yeah, and we got to understand. Look, beauty is subjective. There's no question. But there are certain tenets. There are certain things in the background of beauty that are common, regardless of where you go in the world. People always say. You know, Dr. Swift, how could you stand up in front of a bunch of Japanese or a bunch of Chinese or a bunch of East Indians and talk about beauty when we look, you know, so different and we have such different facial features? Because in actuality, the proportions are there that are, are very close to the same, that ideal proportion. And I always tell people, listen, proportion, it's not the only thing, but it's it's one of the major things of beauty. It's it's why you might have somebody who's a family member or a friend that when you look at their face, you say, well, that's not the most beautiful eyes I've ever seen. And those aren't the most, you know, the most beautiful ears or smile that I've seen. But when you put the whole package together, there's something attractive about that individual. That's proportion talking to you. So I think what happened was, is at the beginning, when we got these pillars and we got these products that we were able to change facial features, we were looking more at improving the features, but disregarding what was the proportion on the face. I mean, you can see how that's really the pendulum has swung too far because mm -hmm. you get these little faces with huge lips. Everybody wants these big lips, you know? And so you can't do that on a smaller face with a smaller lower facial structure. But if you bring proportion into it, then you understand, okay, and I do that to explain to my patients, I say, listen, you're too small on a lower face for me to be able to put on a big set of lips. I used to send them away, but now I say to them, if you want to have more volume in your lips, proportionately, I have to increase the width of your lower face. And now it becomes a situation where, yes, I can give them what they want, but I keep it within the realm of natural, which is a word that a lot of people forgot about for I a think while. So, I'm still yeah. the dinosaur of natural. Yeah. So what, what's you, so you get your calipers out, you're measuring people's faces, you're Sort of bringing it back to that one to one point six one eight ratio, right? But obviously, right. you know that's a guideline. I, I would assume it's not an overarching hard and fast rule. So how do you sort of correct? How do you sort of you know know when to digress from that or what liberties you can take? And then you know everyone's got something about their face. So, you know, I'll give a shout out to one of the nurses here in Australia that uh, Anita East who wrote a book about. Um, identifying people's whatever it is about their face that makes them individual and beautiful so it might be an amazing set of eyes it might be their nose or something so how are you sort of taking that golden ratio theory or, or concept with your calipers and then offsetting that against you know your own eye patient's individuality still keeping it looking natural like what what is that process and how do you know when to di sort of move away from that being too rigid with that Correct. with that concept right so yeah nothing should be rigid when you're talking about beauty it's a, it's a fluid thing there's no question about it but the idea of being pretty much that 
the closer that you get towards the golden ratio, it seems the more that we find that type of feature or those features attractive. You don't have to hit it right on, but the closer that you get, the more attractiveness there is. And this is something that goes back to evolution. I mean, there's just no question. If you take a look, even uh, come to Canada and we'll show you our beautiful moose or we'll show <laughs> you the elk that we have over here. They pick their mates based on the antler symmetry and how closely that symm- that antler sort of uh, branching is to the to the golden ratio. It's it's really, it's crazy. I don't know where this came from. That's why people believe it's kind of a divine ratio because it must have been from a, a greater being that set this up that we see the the marks on a on a monarch butterfly are to the golden ratio proportion. But when it comes to the individual face, what ends up happening is the caliper becomes a confidence tool. It becomes a confidence tool for you and for the patient. The patient understands that you're just not going willy-nilly and you're just firing syringes into their face to create what your concept of beauty is. When they want to argue with me, I say, you can argue with me, but go argue with Da Vinci. I mean, <laughs> can't argue with that dude. So it becomes a confidence tool there, first of all, number one. And it also becomes a stop point. And that's what I was looking for when I was trying to design the calipers, was what I found were people were just pumping product into the face. And because it was coming in one cc aliquots in a in a syringe, it meant that you had to use to them the full cc, and they were just pounding in one cc after another, and trying to inflate rather than reflate faces, and that you know, and hoping that that would take care of lines at the same time. It's like kind of overfilling your tire to try to get rid of the tread. Mm. And I was seeing all these bloated faces, these pillow faces that people were talking about, and I said they really. We don't have a concept of when we've reached our aesthetic destination. So if you're driving in your car and you take your foot off the accelerator a block too early, you don't put in enough volume or enough petrol, right? You have to walk a block to your front door. If you take it off too late, you're a block past your home. You've got to walk a block back. But where is that sweet spot? Where is it that you stop right in front of your door and you've hit your aesthetic destination? You've hit the sweet spot, as we say in a golf swing where you just couldn't have done it any better. And that's what was was bothering me. Once I got the caliper, not only did it help me with training young doctors who were trying, or young injectors who were trying to figure out when to stop injecting, because you can train a monkey to put a syringe in the face. It's when you pull that syringe out. That's the important part. Now I had a way to be able to explain to not only those, those young healthcare professionals who wanted to do injections, but I had a way of explaining it to my patients. And now all of a sudden, my patients were on board. And I would say, you know, there is a beautiful there is a beautiful ratio to your face, a beautiful proportion that's there. We've hit it over here, or you're missing a little bit over here. Let me show you the difference that it makes. And you don't have to inject. You just have to lift the cheek up and give the volume so that it matches the golden ratio, and they see it right away. They buy into it. I originally thought that caliper was going to be more of a marketing tool where it's going to drive people into my practice because, oh, this this guy's measuring people, you know, whatever the story was. But it actually became a way for me to optimize my results and be able to sort of share with, you know, the community uh, of injectors how to get those optimized results. Now, you don't have to hit it dead on. You just have to sort of approach it. And as you approach it, you'll see the differences in the face. It's just, it's quite remarkable. So I think intuitively, even our patients and, and lay people, they they kind of know because 
you know, you show them a photo of their face and they'll go, oh God, my right side's asymmetrical and my, my left is my better side or whatever. So even the lay person knows what is good and what is bad in inverted commas, but how, how do you deal with patients who come to you with very specific requests like I want jawline filler or I want X because many of our listeners who are new injectors they struggle with that they they almost get handcuffed by the patient to do something rather than take a step back look at the photos or use the calipers and actually make a sensible balanced decision how, how would you guide a new injector if they don't have calipers how to make a more rounded holistic decision you know about a face right well that was one of the advantages of actually doing the caliper measurements at the beginning, what it did is it changed my consultation in ways that I didn't expect. Uh, I really got it as a, as a tool to sort of limit where the injections or to locate where the injections were, but my whole consultation changed. And what it did was it educated patients. You don't have to have a caliper to educate patients. And I would bet that a lot of your listeners already have the caliper in their head. Yeah. Like I said, I came from music. I figured, oh, that caliper's in there. But it wasn't. I had to sort of learn it and once you got the hang of it, do I take it out on every single case that I do now? Of course not. But I can tell you the ones that come in that are nine and a half out of tens that really want those specific little things changed. I want one millimeter on my nose. I want that jawline exactly the way that it should be. Out come the calipers because there I have to be spot on in where I'm, I'm putting the injectable. But <clears throat> the trick is, is that whether it's a caliper or not, the idea is, is no matter what the patient presents with, it's your, it's your mandate as a healthcare professional in aesthetics to do a full face assessment and to educate the patient as you're, as you're doing it. And it doesn't take long. It's not like you have to spend an hour with each patient. You can do this in five minutes. I have patients that come in and typically they want to hypnotize you. Yeah. Like you said, they'll hypnotize you by saying, give me my jawline. Give me my jawline, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> fill my folds, fill my folds. And the tendency is that people will concentrate on lines or they'll concentrate on angles because this is what you see in two dimensions. Yeah. We're talking now, you know, on the computer, and I see myself in 2D. If I'm looking at a photograph or a mirror, I see myself in two dimensions. But we see each other in 3D. We're 3D characters. And in fact, we're 4D because we have movement over time. And we have shadows and we have light reflexes and we have contours. But patients don't see that when they look at the mirror and they say, I want that angle over here and I want this line gone. Yeah. So how do you take a patient who's fixated on two dimensions and bring them into the 3D world? The caliper helped me with that, but it's really just a way of educating the patient. Having them look with you and saying, okay, listen. I tell every patient when they come in, I say, listen, I am the student of beauty. As a plastic surgeon, I'm a student of beauty. As You could be a dermatologist. You could be a general practitioner who specializes in, in, in aesthetics, whatever it is. I'm fascinated with beauty. I think there are certain features on your face that are absolutely beautiful. I'd like to record them in my chart. Do you mind if I go ahead and record them in my chart as we go through it? And they'll say, yeah, go right ahead. I mean, it's their dime. Why not, right? And then you do a systematic, and that is the key. And I keep on harping this in my symposia that systematic creates magic, okay? If you're systematic in your approach, then you go from the upper face to the mid face to the lower face. And I use the periorbital lesion as a separate area because it's the easiest area to treat poorly. <laughs> <laughs> so if 
you do that systematic approach, what you're doing is you're exposing the patient to the entire face and you're educating them as you go along. So a patient who, like you mentioned, who comes in and says, I want a stronger jawline. So I go through it and I say, okay, well, let's take a look. We'll go through the whole face. Look at your forehead. Oh, your forehead height is beautiful and you have beautiful eyebrows. And yes, I love your eyes the way they are. And your cheeks, well, you're starting to deflate a little bit in your cheeks, but that's the way we naturally age. It's understandable. And as you deflate, things sort of shift down. They slide and you get a little bit deeper in the folds. And as the mobile part of the face, which is on the outside, also starts to slide, you start to lose that jaw angle and things are coming forward and you're starting to pleat over here where we see the puppet lines. And you're educating the patient. And I've found in my practice, and I measure everything in my practice because you can't manage what you don't measure. But when I do these full face assessments on a patient who came in and said, just give me this, and I've done that full face assessment that takes me four minutes or five minutes, 76% of the time, three out of every four patients will look at me and say, well, hang on a second, Dr. Swift. Before you do my jawline, you said that, you know, my cheeks and my my lateral part of the face, my outside part of the face over here is causing part of the problem along the jawline. Is there anything you can do about that? Yeah. Now, there's a huge difference between an ask and a tell. You know, that patient walks into your practice and says, I want my jawline done. I want my folds done. And the first thing you say is, well, the problem is starting here and here. They're going to look at you and figure this guy's trying to just push through inches and get me to do a full face. But if you educate them, they ask for it instead of you telling them. And once they ask for it, that's it. They're on board. They understand. It doesn't have to all be done at that time, but you can say, listen, we'll make a plan. There's no question. I'm going to give you that beautiful jawline definition, but in order to balance it properly, you need a bit more volume and a little more support in your cheeks and a little bit more towards in front of the ear over here or maybe in the temple. You now understand how that works and they're on board and away you go. Mm-hmm. But to go ahead and not every patient is wired for aesthetics. We know that, right? We see what walks around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you know that not every patient is wired for aesthetics. To do that and just to give them what they want because of the fact that they want a strong jawline, but it doesn't look right on that face unless the other areas are addressed as well. I think that's selling them short. Yeah, I love that explanation. I, I guess you're basically saying have the confidence to educate and take the photos and show them. It's 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 really very simple if you if you have a, a systematic yeah. consultation. No, you, yeah, for sure. And you'll get some patients who just say, listen, I just want that done. And then you have to decide to what extent you can improve that area. Yeah. But you got to be careful because, you know, when we look at people, we assess the entire face. We look at their eyes when we first meet them, right into the eyes, friend or foe. This is evolutionary. And then our vision spreads out from there and usually looks at the light reflexes on the face afterwards. But I've always said, if you draw attention to one area of the face, especially the lower part of the face, If you're drawing attention to a beautiful area over there and the rest of the face is wanting, it looks worse. Agreed. What you're doing is you're you're drawing your attention to something that's low on the face when we like to look at beautiful features that are high on the face. So if you want to do something low, it's like we say, don't do a facelift without doing the eyes or looking to see if the eyes are done because the eyes will look like two tired islands in the middle of the a very calm sea. It's the same thing. If you develop a beautiful jawline, but the rest of the face looks like me, you're in trouble. 
you got to be able to, to boost it up a bit. I look good, Arthur. I wanted to just ask you a bit more about the the history very quickly. So you mentioned Gene sure. and Alistair, but right. when did the penny drop for you to, as a plastic surgeon to say, hey, there's this stuff that I can just inject. I don't need a scalpel anymore. And like, what were your cool? early experiences yeah. with filler as well? Right. So what happened was, is I started in 92 doing toxin. Botox was the only thing that was available at the time. And I wasn't much of a collagen injector before that because I felt that, to be honest with you, amazing how that thing got knocked off the block. Mm. Uh, collagen was so popular, and then along comes hyaluronic acid, and we just don't hear about it anymore. Collagen was a way to kind of fatten your wallet more than your patient's lips. You know, it was something <laughs> that just didn't last very long. But it was it was it was a temporary thing. I was actually a silicone injector going way back into the late 80s, micro droplets of silicone. I'm glad I never got into trouble with that. But here I was a plastic surgeon, spending three days a week of my practice operating and then spending another three days because I was a six on seven idiot where I was going in and working too much. And the other three days were going to be, you know, consultations and seeing post-ops, etc. And here I was going along, like this nice little practice, moving along, and along come Gene and Alistair and talk about this product. Now, I watched it for a year, and I've always liked to be at the front of innovation, you know? So um, I was watching and watching, and I said, okay, after a year, I'm going to start doing this. And what I did when I imagined this back in 92, when I brought it into my practice, nobody had heard about it. I mean, the word Botox, which is like a, a household word, household word now people i think with penetration into the, into the population was maybe two or three percent or four percent that actually heard about it mm -hmm. and then when you started to try to explain to it that you were taking a toxin which i hate that word but we're talking about a protein that i'm going to inject into your face that's going to soften the muscles i said i don't even know how to approach the patient to even tell them so what i started doing is i add, i brought it into my practice as an added value i didn't charge for it Wow. So back in 92 or 93, what happened was you came in to see me, you had your nose done or you had your eyelids done or you had some facial work done. And I would look and say, how do you like me to bust that number 11 out of your, out of, between your eyebrows? Can you do that? And I said, yeah, I have this medication that I could put in and for about three or four months. You're going to look very rested and relaxed. Oh, you got to try it. Oh, I want to try it. I want to try it. So I would do it as an added value. So what I did was I reserved every second Wednesday uh, I would cut out half a day of surgery and I would reserve the afternoon just to do injections on the patients who had had procedures with me just to give them the experience of it. You know, it's the old story. If you bring them to the well to taste the water and the water is sweet, they're coming back every time. <laughs> so I started doing this, not charging patients. And the next thing I knew, we started getting phone calls at the office that were saying, I, I don't want surgery with swift i guess they heard about my great acumen as a surgeon they said i don't want surgery with him but i want that stuff that he's putting into people's faces my friend's face that she looks so relaxed so there was a demand all of a sudden a huge demand and so that half a day of every second wednesday turned into a half a day every wednesday then i had to cancel a full day of surgery to be able to accommodate the patients that's the way that i brought it into my practice now i mean it's 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 commonplace so you can't kind of do it that way but nonetheless that's how i started bringing it into my practice and i started bringing in fillers as well in 94 and 95 before we actually got them i was getting them on compassionate grounds i was getting mm. stuff from europe to be able to do that 
And it just started to take off from there. I realized there's a lot of traction on this. And as you said, um, it was a complete change in my practice. I had a practice that I would spend maybe the entire day seeing eight or nine consultations because I had to spend 45 minutes or an hour with a patient to talk about their face or their breasts or their belly. And now all of a sudden I'm running a dental practice where I'm seeing 30 patients a day. Yeah. My staff wasn't prepared for it. I wasn't prepared for it. We had to make a whole shift in the way that the office was sort of planning and the way that we had the, the consultation rooms and everything had to change. So there was a learning process that, that went along with that. And then it just started to grow from that where I had to cut back on a day, and then I cut back on two days of surgery to say to myself, well, you know, these injection days, I know this is a terrible image, but the injection days to me are like me sitting in a vineyard somewhere in Italy with a floppy hat on, and I'm just painting and having a great time. I didn't have to worry about hematomas. I didn't have to worry about nerve injuries. I didn't have to worry about really a lot of consequences. Sure, there are things that can go you know, adversely with injectables, but it was much less stress than my surgical days. I would wake up in the morning, I'd say, wow, today's an injection day. I had a big smile on my face. I'm ready to go in and attack, you know, and it was great. So I really sort of fell in love with it in an early thing. I didn't know what I was doing, like I told you when I started, but I said, this is a lot of fun. Let me get better at it. So that's how it ended up becoming part of a plastic surgical practice. And to tell you the truth, there were no plastic surgeons doing it when I started. And I was scorned upon by my colleagues who looked at me and said, what are you, a frustrated dermatologist? What's going on with you guys, you know, with, with, with you? You're, you're kind of, you're using needles now and syringes instead of a scalpel. I mean, they laughed at me when I started with liposuction in 84, saying that's not surgery. And yet it became the most popular surgical procedure. So this is what happened. I think it became an integral part of my practice. And like I said, I'm not smart enough to plan it that way, but all these patients who were coming for injectables were now possible surgical candidates. So one was feeding the other and vice versa. So I was self-generating a practice. <clears throat> it just made sense. I just, I got fooled along with the comet. I wasn't smart enough to figure all this stuff out in advance. It just started to happen. And I just held on and, and let it ride. I don't know if you know, I, I used to be a general surgeon, Arthur, and it's exactly how I feel every day because I reflect on, you know, leaks from a bowel and stabbing injuries and all that sure. stuff. And now I just go in and have fun and have a nice conversation with a patient and, and make people more right. happy and confident. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Sorry, I stole your no, question. No, that's okay. That's fine. Every, every day you create beauty is a great day. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. I say that all the time and it really is. Now, I've got a little bit of, I wouldn't say it's a controversial question, but I think it's a question that, that's been on my mind since we started talking and, and perhaps a lot of people in their cars or wherever they're listening are maybe asking, thinking the same kind of thing. The industry has gone come a long way since mm. we're talking about, you know, the days that we're reflecting on now when, when you first got started. It, it's grown. One of, my, one of my dear friends was the person that started the chain clinic concept here in Australia. I'm not sure if you've heard of Laser Clinics Australia, but they've become Absolutely. the largest. Yeah. The, and they, but you know, I think initially what they set out to achieve was to make these procedures affordable and accessible to the everyday person. And I think that was a great concept. Um, but now this concept, has, th this business model has grown into this absolute monster that has now spread its, its wings ac across the world. And as many people that listen to this podcast are potentially in that environment and 
the, the business model has changed. Everything's become corporatized. Everything's about time and money. And obviously, you know, we're all here doing these jobs because we need to provide for our families. And that, that's the reality of, of being in business. But I know there are many injectors that are in this environment. You know, they're having to see 15 patients a day. We've sort of moved to a point now where you're almost like an order taker. We sort of, we sort of reflect, we spoke about a little bit in one of Jake's questions around, you know, the patients coming in demanding certain treatments. So how, for these people that are in these environments that are listening to this podcast and thinking, wow, that sounds great, Arthur. You know, I've got 15 patients to see today. They're all going to tell me what they want to do. Do you have any, any thoughts on sort of where we've gone as an industry and any advice for injectors potentially in that space that are thinking, I really like what you're saying, but how do I potentially implement it? Yeah, because it mm-hmm. is it is challenging. It is challenging. Yeah, you get up, you get caught up in the in the battle of everyday things that you do, and then you know it, it becomes a problem, it becomes a sort of an anchor around your neck. There's no question about it. And I've seen it from the time when I started, and I was the only guy in the city doing it to now where there's probably a half a dozen guys in my in my actual building you mm. know who are doing it as well so and this idea of commoditizing what we do is something we have to be very careful about it's something that i've been fighting against swimming against the stream with that i'm not saying that these massive clinics and where you can go ahead and and you know storefront toxin or storefront injectables are the worst thing that ever had happened i find that if people are doing it and the pure motivation is purely financial then we get into issues i think that's one of the things that i keep on trying to stress at my symposia is that don't get caught up on the finances of it i really believe it's a question of creating magic and the way that you create magic is by being passionate about it and not doing it as you know this is the type of thing that i got to do in order to put food on the table it is happening that's what it's doing But if you maintain the passion, that is more contagious than anything we've been through for the past four years. The fact that you're passionate about what you do will go ahead and reflect on the patient and maintain that patient. It will keep retention along that line. Because because if you take a look, and there are studies that have been done to see on patient retention and patient conversion from consultation to actual treatment, it's much lower than the actual healthcare provider realizes you know the studies have shown that it's somewhere around 45 or 50 percent imagine that one out of every two patients that's sitting in front of you will decide not to have the procedure done particularly with you they might go somewhere else or they might not have it done at all that's wasting a lot of time in your clinic you're seeing 15 you think you're going to be able to hold on to those 15 but you probably won't even retain anywhere more than 10 or 11 out of those 15 you're losing a lot so i'll give you a perfect example Um, I train for the passion. I train people who want to do this as a profession and not as a hobby. So if you're going to be doing this injectable thing, you know, just to put money on the table and you're going to, you know, see two patients or three patients a week or whatever the story is, and you're just going to go ahead and use it to do that, that's not who I'm interested in training. But if you're very passionate about what you're doing, and you really want to create beauty every day. Yeah, I'm here to help you, not only to be able to create beauty, but to stay safe while you're doing it. That's the key, is not to be able to injure patients, okay? So now you have a situation where I train people in my own city. My friends who are business people look at me and say, that's got to be the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You're giving away your secret to your competition. I said, I can't stop competition. And I know for a fact that where you guys are in Australia, you tried 
or somebody tried, I don't know which specialty it was, to crowd the specialty to only core physicians, whether it was, I think it was plastic surgeons or dermatologists, and you didn't want dentists doing it, you didn't want nurses doing it, whatever the story is, and try to legislate against it. But I understand that fell through, of course, because people have to be allowed to to be able to to develop their their own specialty the way they want to do it. And I, I can appreciate that. That's, that's not a problem. But what you have to do is you have to maintain that drive and passion to create the magic. So here I am, I'm training people in my city. Why do I train them? Because, and I'll prove it to you, if somebody opens up across the street and starts to do what I'm doing and charges less than I do, it becomes, quote unquote, a price war, which I won't allow. Um, if that happens, yeah, they'll draw off a patient or two or three or four, but I could tell those patients when they come back, and most of them do. Those are the ones that you walk into your clinic or you walk into your examining room and they have their heads down like this, <laughs> and they're looking down. You know, They're embarrassed to look you in the eye, and I have my chart, and I go, oh, hi, how are you? I haven't seen you in a while. I cheated on you, Dr. Smith. I said, you didn't cheat on me. You're not married to me. And they said, well, I went to see somebody else. And I said, okay, great. Well, how was it? Oh, the experience was terrible. It bruised me hurt me. I looked weird for a week. You know, it's the old story. So that person wasn't interested in developing a relationship or even going ahead and creating beauty. It was how much product can I get into that filler up? You know, how much can I do in order to be able to optimize what I'm making bottom line at the end of the day? That will never carry you through. Yeah. So two guys that I train opened up in my building right next to me and they figured, hey, Swift has a, a waiting list. All we got to do is undercut him and we'll grab all oh, the extra wow. people that are waiting. So they went ahead and had lost leaders. They were offering to go ahead and have talks in order to have, you know, the lines busted out between your eyebrows for $50 or something like that. Okay. And they were trying to pull patients away from me. And did they? They pulled a couple, like I said, but they came back eventually because these guys weren't interested in creating beauty or being passionate about it. They were just only interested in the bucks at the end. And what happened after a year, they're gone. I'm still here. Did I get into a price war with them? Absolutely not. What I did was when they opened up and they started charging crazy, ridiculously low prices, I increased my prices to show that there's a value for what we do and that it's not a commodity, that we are practitioners of an art and they're paying for the hand, not for the syringe. And so they left. I'm making more money now because I increased my prices, which I never thought of doing. When I bump into these guys at meetings, I give them a big hug and I say, thanks to you, I'm earning more. It's fantastic. But the reason is, is because of the fact that I was only interested in giving the patient the best experience and the best result. And that's what you have to keep in the back of your head. So you're seeing 15 patients and what ends up happening is you start to get into this, into this factory type yeah. of situation. Stop. Take a breath. They really, what am I try, trying to do here? I'm trying to create beauty. I never advertised a day in my life. I don't believe in it. My advertisements are the, the billboards of my practice are the people walking around. You want people walking around who look weird or coming out of your practice or look incomplete, unfinished works of art, then you're never going to be able to be able to build a practice. Now, these roll-ups that are buying all these practices and then they're going ahead and they're yeah. creating this huge corporation, the ones that are going to succeed are the ones that are going to keep that mentality and going to keep that idea behind it. 
But if they're just going at it and opening up on every corner and trying to, you know, sort of blow it out like 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 uh, hairdresser shops, the blow dries that you can go in and get for, you know, for half an hour, that will, in my in my estimation, that will never succeed. It, it would just won't succeed, maybe morally or ethically in my head, but it certainly is is going to to ruin a profession that really is a specialty. It's not something that you should be able to handle. Like my friend said to me, well, just sticking a needle in the face. It isn't. We know there's things that can go sideways on it. And we know that there's things that you can create that shouldn't be created. So for the young ones that are there, you know, we're working actually with our, our, um, our group that the Swift Beauty is to be able to enable those young practitioners to go out on their own and to be able to survive on their own by creating results that that are going to put them at the top tier that's the way to do it you know if you want to be a, a journeyman and you just want to go there and you want to be a number that's part of a clinic and just banging them out like that i mean good luck to you in that aspect of it but i really think yeah these i'm still look i've been doing this for what 32 years now or whatever the story is i still do all my injections myself. I'm not saying that's the smartest thing. We're we're now starting to go ahead. I've trained my nurses to be able to go ahead and do the touch-ups if there are any. And now they're starting to go ahead and to build up the practice from that aspect of it. But I love it so much. I don't want to give it up. You know, that's the situation. But these young people have to understand that they can go ahead and still maintain a professional approach to what they do even though they're working within a corporate structure. I'm just going to say, Absolutely. Be- going to say before you ask your question, someone moves into your building that you trained, <laughs> then, then you, they undercut you and your response is to increase your prices. That is the most gangster move I think I've ever heard <laughs> of all time. That- that's just unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, look, they, they really need to go and get their brain checked if yeah. they thought that was going to work. Oh, yeah, but, but just the you know, just the the confidence to go. Well, screw you! I'm actually going to increase my prices. Play that, out the water. Yeah, that, yeah, look, if you, if you get in, if you get into a price war, it's a fast race to the bottom. Yes, it is. There'll always be somebody who'll open up across the street who will yeah. charge less than you and think that they can pull you, like they can pull your patients away. For those patients who are really just looking for a bargain yeah. on their face, maybe they're best off going to those places. But when people realize that looking good never goes out of style, even in a disruptive economy, that the best thing you can wear is not Gucci or Prada, but yeah. a beautiful face, a youthful face. People who realize that who are on board, I want those patients. Those are the patients that I want. <laughs> Joking aside, I think we're going to have to capture that last five minutes and make sure that yeah, new injectors it. hear it because it's such a common thing. David's a businessman. He's owned clinics and he's seen hundreds of injectors come through his clinics in the past. And sure. they all struggle with feeling uh, inadequate and having to be the cheapest to get patients. And it's just yeah. this sort of vicious cycle of people racing to the bottom. And and you just very clearly said that, that that's not going to work. Can you so. imagine going to a cardiologist and then <laughs> there's a car- <laughs> first first stent free or so? Like, I mean, can you, I mean, like, <laughs> it's bizarre, isn't it? <laughs> He'd be like, maybe I don't want to go to that place. It's just like Dr. Nick Riviera from The Simpsons. He'd be like, hold on a second. Um, Arthur, I wanted to sort of ask, spinning off from that, and you've kind of half answered it, but one of the reasons we got you on here is because, yes, you have all the experience, but you've also worked with pretty much all of the pharma companies. You you Mm. understand all of the products and 
One of the quandaries we have, and I'm a trainer for Allegan and, and another company, Profilo here, is that mm-hmm. when we train for a company, we have to do it in a very structured, compliant, sometimes slightly unusual way. And then Correct. you have the outlet to train people in your own way on Swift Beauty. So, Correct. you know, but we can't fly everyone to, to Canada and, and, you know, we, we can't Correct. afford that. So how do injectors learn? It, 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 we're kind of stuck. We either have the pharma model or you go and pay a ton of money and see someone amazing like yourself. So what advice do you give to new injectors? It's, it's, a, it's a difficult gig. There's no question about it. I mean, the pharma companies, for the most part, um, the bigger ones are definitely being fiscally responsible by, by having education as part of their backbone. And that's the key thing. I mean, once they get rid of education, I mean, you can't provide a car and then just not explain how to drive it. So, you know, that's, that's a key thing. And then they are limited. There's no question by compliance and regulatory. They have to stay on label. And then you can sort of apply that further. But yes, by attending conferences, I mean, there's conferences as well that you, you don't get the in-depth type of exposure that you do, for example, at my type of conference. But some of the major conferences, you used to get exposure to other things that are happening. And it's the hallway banter that really helps a lot in those cases because you end up meeting people who are doing things and you'll sort of say, hey, you know, I'm doing it this way. And then somebody will say, yeah, I I used to do it that way, but now I do it this way and think about this and that. So you pick up little tidbits. We used to say that if you can pick up three things that are new in your practice, every time you go to a conference, you really, it was a worthwhile conference to Mm. attend. But it is a, a difficult thing to do. I mean, this is where the need for what I was doing uh, by coming up with this sort of this continuing medical education concept wasn't really my idea. I mean, what happened was, is I would come back from talking for pharma and you could see the frustration on my face and my fists were clenched because here I was talking nasolabial folds, nasolabial folds, nasolabial folds. And I know that in true clinical practice, people aren't just staying on the nasolabial folds they are going all over the place. And I wanted to be able to help them, to share with them how to stay safe, what layers to do, all this in. And I couldn't. And my daughters, who were watching me come home frustrated all the time, just looked at me in 2017 and said, well, Dad, why don't you just go in and do your own sort of educational endeavor, your own educational platform, where you can talk about all these things that are real life, that are going on in practices. And I said, do you realize the amount of effort and work that takes Hmm. in order to be able to put something like that together? And my two daughters said, okay, we'll take care of that. All you have to do is you do what you do best. You go up on stage, do your little dog and pony show, (laughs) and away you go. (laughs) You know? So I said, okay, if you guys want to do that. So it was really their baby. They, They birthed that baby by going ahead and doing this. And just to show you, I mean, we started this in 2000 before the pandemic, of course, but we started this in 2018. And the very first one that we did, we were sold out within a week. And I said, I want to try to keep it somewhat intimate so people can feel that they can ask a question, they can grab me, or they can do whatever the story was. So we were trying to limit to it like, I said, 100. Let's limit it to 100 people. I don't want a, an audience of 5,000. I want an audience of 100. And we'll have a little breakout so they can get their questions answered and all this type of thing. And from that point onwards, every single one that we put together, so there's a huge need or a huge demand, as you said, to be able to be taught off-label, off so to speak, or to have a comprehensive approach to the face. 
So they got to read. They got to pick up journals and they got to read the articles that are coming out. There's no question. They have to get together with colleagues and, and whether that's at a conference or other places as well. I keep my lines of communication constantly open to people, who especially who, even if you didn't attend one of my conferences, it's very common that I'll get questions fired at me through emails and saying, I have a difficult situation here. Can I do it this way? Can I do it that way? I enjoy that because what it does is it allows me to learn at the same time. They send me a, a picture of a patient that they're trying to treat. And they sort of say, this is what I'm thinking of. What do you think? And I send it back with a little drawing on it. And I say, yeah, you know, I'm thinking that same way. I think you're you're doing great and add a little bit of this on. And I, I like the way that you're doing it. I wouldn't have thought of it that way, et cetera. And we learn from each other. And the next thing you know, both our practices are elevated. But it's it's an investment. There's no question about it. I mean, I can't tell you how many people. And yeah, we priced it. You know, our particular symposia, we priced higher than what you would normally find uh, by going to a 500-person attendee type of conference. There's no question. And I wanted to weed out the ones who weren't serious about it. You yeah. know, if you say, oh, I think I might take this up, and, you know, I want to pay 50 pounds or $50 to go see, a, you know, an expert on how to do this type of stuff. I didn't want those type of attendees. And it's very common that we'll get attendees that, said, that will say, you know, this is something I really wanted to to, to go to. I think it's the best investment that I can make. It, you have to spend in order to be able to, to generate, so to speak. And that formula has worked extremely well. We're now working really tirelessly on an online educational platform that would be more affordable that people can have a refer, reference to so that it becomes a library. Yeah. And that's what I'm doing now. I'm using I'm, I'm a big believer in paying it forward, so to speak. So I'm using the big network of key opinion leaders around the world who I've, I've trained with. We've, we've exchanged ideas and we've trained other people together. And I think they have a lot to offer, but they don't have a voice. They're going to have a voice on this educational platform where people can come. And you know, it's not only the swift way, they'll learn about other ways to be able to do it as well. So there's a lot of educational content out there. It's just, as you said, trying to find a way that we can reach the young uh, practitioners where it's it's somewhat affordable. And we're looking at ways to do that. There's no question. It's tough. It's I, tough. I think you said podcast as well, didn't you? Podcast. <laughs> you guys, you guys, I mean, we're having a great chat over here, but you know, you are the backbone for this type of thing. I mean, I, I know what the traffic could be like, whether you're in Sydney or Melbourne. So to to be able to sit back in your car and just be able to to hear the type of things that other people are doing and yeah. and how they got there. I mean, you guys are are really contributing great to pushing the specialty forward. It's something that I've always said. I don't want people to give back what I give to them if I teach them or if I share with them a technique and they just pirate that technique. We're stagnant. That's yeah. it. It just stops right there. But if they take that technique and make it better phenomenal when yeah. you guys are going ahead and exposing them to that type of thing i think it's the best thing ever Thanks. i really uh, kudos to both of you oh thank you um it's very much that that famine or feast kind of mentality isn't it people wanting to hoard information for themselves but i think the reality is that no one's going to be able to give a result like dr arthur swift or dr jake sloan every it's like fingerprints you know you can get close we're all similar but in your you know your touch is your touch and you know yeah i just think it's it's a concept we all need to remind ourselves of 
um, of. I was going to ask you a question in relation, and Jake's going to look at me because I always ask about collagen stimulated, but I, I want to <laughs> ask you about it because, because I feel we're always so focused on tox and fillers. And I think, especially in Australia, we are starting to reach for the handbrake a little bit on the overinflated face and you know, that the, especially with the chain clinics that don't really, you know, they've got Profilo now, but in terms of other treatments like Sculpture and Radius and th these other products mm -hmm. that do have a lot of utility in, in, in the industry, what are your thoughts on those collagen stimulators or what other tools do you use to address, you know, and I like to refer to the face, we're, we're sticking with art as a canvas. And if you've got a canvas that's all floppy and not sitting on the frame properly, it makes it difficult for you to do your work. So where do these other procedures fit into your arsenal of weapons of choice. Sorry, we've gone a bit massive, <laughs> gone a bit aggressive now. But where where do they fit for you? And sort well, of are, yeah, 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 they are part of the armamentarium. Yeah. There's just no question about it. I discounted them very early on in my practice. I mean, when I started with sculpture, it was known as Newfill, yeah. and that was the product that came out of Europe. <clears throat> that was many many years ago. There were issues with the product because we were reconstituting it a little bit too heavy at the beginning. And then, you know, patients were developing little lumps and bumps. So we didn't seem to have an eraser for it. So it became something that you sort of shied away from. And then I was using those products, mostly Sculpture ADS with a lower face because of the fact that I didn't find that I didn't have a filler, a hyaluronic acid based at that time that could give me the structure support that I needed in the, in the bottom part of the face, whether I was using it as a trampoline or whether I was using it as a tent pole or whatever, whichever way technique you wanted. And then the company started to expand their portfolios of HAs. There seemed to be so much more towards the HA development. And we started getting all these different children that we had to deal with, <laughs> personalities of yeah. different HAs, right? That's what I call them. I call them my kids because <laughs> every company came up with their personality or their particular characteristics on the HA. And we started to have thin ones and thick ones. We are now painting with big brushes and little brushes. And so when I started doing that, the, the biostimulators kind of fell to the side in my practice. And it was a mistake because those biostimulators really have a very important role to play. Understanding how they work understanding what they provide is, is something that isn't uh, competitive to the HAs, but it, it's actually adjunctive to it. It's something that is synergistic to it. So I use those in my practice now. And, and some of my friends, the guys who have been around have been using these biostimulators for quite a while, and they were always pushing them on me at the beginning, they were absolutely right. There was, it was the situation that I had to adopt them back into my practice. When you talk about radius, you talk about sculpture, you talk about some of the newer things that are coming up. Mm. You say you're working with Allergan. Allergan's getting a product now that's going to be stimulating elastin. Mm. I mean, that's something that I have been talking about for years, saying, listen, we've been knocking on collagen's door, and it seems that that's the only door that we knock on, but the neighbor next door, elastin, maybe that's one that we should be knocking on. And now they have a product that hopefully will be released to market that has been shown to upregulate elastin. And then there's other com companies like Galderma that... Um, that I think recently purchased Sofragen, I think is the name of the company, mm -hmm. where they're using um, natural silk protein, for example, that, that's going to be part of the HA product. Um, again, they're looking for biostimulants. I'm working with a company now called uh, Volumina. Interestingly enough, they <laughs> had that name before Voluma came out for Allergan, but Volumina. And they've, they've had a product also now that's a true volumizer. So it's getting away from the HAs again. And that's something that I think is good. That's first principle thinking, which is I'm a big proponent of. It's not, 
taking an HA or taking a, a standard recipe and then saying, okay, we're going to add a little more sugar, a little more salt, a lot of sugar when it comes to <laughs> HA. But I'm saying you're not taking that recipe and just altering a little bit. You're taking it back to its basic roots, going back to the vegetables, the, the, the you know, the, the products in their core, and then building it up from the, from base again that's first principle thinking i think that's the way that it has to be done and i'm glad that these new products are coming up to be able to biostimulate the skin i think that's exactly what we should be doing controlled biostimulation is something that i'm a big proponent of and i think it's fantastic you can only inflate or reflate to a certain degree okay you want to stuff that pillow go ahead and stuff that pillow but don't overstuff it and then at some point, you're going to have to iron the sheet that's over the top of it. Otherwise, there's going to be crinkles in it, and you have to stimulate. you got to, shall we say, um, like on the furnishing, you got to, when you have furniture or anything, you have to recover it. So you have to take that old, tired skin and make it look a little more fresh. And now we even have situations like exosomes that are becoming mm. extremely popular. Um, the idea of being able to bathe the skin in younger cells so that the older cells say, hey, I got to stick up my chest and stuck and suck in my stomach. What I do every time I walk into a room, so I'm not that old yet. When I get too old not to suck in my stomach, when there's a pretty girl in the room, then I know I'm really old. But the idea, but the idea of being able to change the environment in which these cells are living so that they look more youthful, I mean, it's only a plus. And I think that, yeah, absolutely. So Radius is back on my shelf. Sculpture is back on my shelf. I was using it purely for body work originally, but it's now back in the face for me too. That's great. Well, I was going to ask you about the future, but at the end, but let, let's just carry on. So I remember your talk in 2019, you came to Australia. I think you were talking for Chroma. It was, honestly, it was a fascinating talk and it was great. We were having dinner and getting drunk whilst you were talking. <laughs> and um, you spoke about some really interesting concepts. And I don't know if your thoughts have changed since then, because things have moved on, but you were talking about concepts like... Um, a 3D printed mask that sort of sits on the face and these tiny, tiny little, let's call them nano needles, like tiny little things. And they'd be impregnated with toxin and maybe even filler and maybe even other stuff. So you still remember that. I still remember that. that. Yeah. So, so where do you think we're going with this? It penetrated, so to speak, did it? (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I've been asked to give that talk again and I went back and you said I gave it in 2019, was it? I think the first time I gave that talk was actually in, in Asia, and I gave it, I think, the year or two before, in 2017 or 18, I made some prediction yeah. about where I thought the the specialty was going to head. And then when I went back to give that talk last year again, so the same talk that you heard in 2019, I looked at it and I said, okay, now I'm going to highlight the four or five predictions that I made that are actually happening, mm. okay, so that they've happened or are actually happening, and some of the ones that I missed and some of the places that it's going. I mean, it's it's an amazing specialty that we have because it's a very young specialty. I told you, I started as one of the, I, I can call it the forefathers, or I started as one of the initial people doing it back in the early 90s. So we're talking about, what is that? That's 30 years now. There's a specialty of 30 years. Look how far we've come in 30 years. The amount of advances that we've had, both in the evolution of, the patients, not the way that they think about things, the products, the techniques that we're using, even the way that I do my consultation, the way that I charge, everything has evolved so rapidly in this space. It's it's like on the steep upslope, and it's holding onto that comment that I was talking about. I do believe 
I mentioned earlier that we were going to get talks and that was going to be a little longer lasting than the three or four months that we have right now. And there is a product that's available in the U.S. that's on the market that's touting itself as a six-month toxin. Uh, I was involved in part of the research on that toxin as well. But we know that even if we use some of the other toxins and we increase the dose, and we understand the dose response curve, that we can get longer duration as well. It's always a play between duration and adverse event. We just don't want the toxin to spread too far and involve muscles that aren't being targeted. But we can do that. There's no question about that. So the longer-acting toxins, that was an easy call for me. There's no question about that. It's the gene editing part and this, like you said, this 3D printer. The 3D printer, I said, is going to be involved in it. And actually, it's on the market now in Asia. And I'm not sure if it's already made it into the U.S., but they do have these pads with little HA stickules, just like you said, oh. that when you apply at night and you put it onto your face at night, they have tiny little needles. It's like micro needles of HA that are freeze-dried. You put it on your skin at night. And then when you wake up in the morning, you peel it off and that HA has melted into the dermis and you've basically given yourself a little HA sort of boost into your skin. You better book, your, book a ticket to days. Korea, David. This is right so, up his alley. <laughs> <laughs> so those are available on the market now. Uh, and we got some samples in Canada to check them out and to see. Do I think it's going to replace the deeper volumizing stuff? No. But where else have we gone? We're now involving ultrasound a lot more. And that was something that was kind of a peripheral thing. And it's now becoming more commonplace and central. Does it have to be involved in every clinic? No, but I can envision still with the robotics that are available now. And there is a robot that's available that can go ahead, imagine, and put your, your um, mascara on your eyelashes without ever touching your eye, being precise about that. There's going to be robotic arms that will be able to inject based on ultrasound feedback on infrared to find out where the vessels are that we'll be able to to do the things that we're doing with our hands. And that's something that I said is coming and it actually is happening probably within a couple of years that we're going to start to see those issues. But the real thing that that is getting down to the root or the first principles and basics again is this gene editing thing that I talked about, if you remember about that. And that scared me more than anything else because of the fact of this CRISPR, the idea that yeah. you can go ahead and edit genes out of the DNA sequence and then insert new genes or just cancel genes out. And they've come up with a gene that is responsible now for aging. So you can imagine where somebody is going to use that CRISPR to go ahead and negate the aging gene, perhaps in utero, to see what the story is. And the question is going to be, what is the effect going to be? Now, I figured this was going to take, as I mentioned in that talk, that we wouldn't see this before another century or so. But unfortunately, unfortunately, I mean, ethical panels have said we're not ready for it yet. But one investigator comes from the other side of the world, just went ahead and fired away and did some gene editing on uh, twins that were born to a, a mother with HIV to edit out the possibility of contracting the HIV. Those babies are still alive. They're growing up and everything. Interestingly enough, he took huge backlash from the, the scientific community for, for going ahead and even attempting anything about gene editing, as you can imagine, in the human. And uh, he kind of disappeared. We don't know where he is. Now. Oh. I, have no idea, but, I wonder what country but that is. That's the, <laughs> that's the thing that I think is going to knock us off the block eventually. And that's why I said in that talk, Enjoy the ride. 
you know, for you guys that are surfers over there in Aussie land, I said, enjoy the wave, enjoy the ride, because who knows, in 50 years, we might be obsolete like the dinosaurs. It's hard to say. But this is changing so rapidly. I think uh, I'll still ride it for a while, and I think you younger guys will be able to ride it for a while. But who knows, maybe two or three generations, it will be things that will be robotically controlled or gene edited so that you can you can promote um, anti-aging through other means, you know? Let's enjoy it. Amazing. I was I was going to ask you around tear troughs, and I, I'm not a, sure. I, I'm not a medical person, but it's something that's been interest interesting me because it's a topic that comes up over and over again. We've got people here in Australia sure. now that have eradicated those treatments from their practice just because of the unreliability, especially when you're looking at the long term results. You know, we've got things right. like uh, biofillers coming in out out now, which claim to be potentially another way to sort of treat that area. What are your Correct. thoughts on t- uh, t- treating the tear trough? Like what sort of products do you use? How do you sort of circumvent that process where, you know, the skin's very thin there. It's, it's a place that, that, you know, appears to age, you know, first or more quickly than other areas. You can get the filler migrating or potentially breaking down over time. How, d- how do you approach it? Because I'm sure there's lots of people. You just, that- an- you just answered all the questions <laughs> right in your question right there. Yeah. You nailed it in every single respect. You know, I talk about the tear trough. It's not an area that you want to start obviously injecting if you're a novice injector because it's the perfect storm it's thin skin it's a situation where the lymphatic drainage is different than the rest of the face it relies heavily on the muscle that's around it which is the orbicularis muscle it drains more in a lateral or horizontal fashion towards the middle rather than draining vertically so anything that you do that disrupts the lymphatics or overloads lymphatics is going to appear as a mailer bag or some some swelling that you have over there. So it's fraught with obstacles. There's no question. When I train in my symposium, I talk about the fact that what happens on our face is that we respond to stress. And where you see the stressful areas are the areas that are exposed to sun. There's no question about it. People who smoke, we see that sort of pan-facial stress that we're talking about. People who live in polluted cities, there's no question that they age quicker on their skin as well than people who live rurally. But stress to the face is movement. That's the stress to any organism. And we know that because if you take a look at a pair of shoes that you wear every day, you'll see stress lines or creases. But the ones that you wear for a party once a month still look new. So the more you wear it, the more it takes abuse. There's no question. And when you're talking about the thinnest skin on the body, contracting 1,200 times an hour, which is what you blink normally in an hour. Every time you activate your upper lid, you're activating your lower lid. And so you're crunching that skin 1,200 times an hour, which is like 20,000 times a day. That's where you're going to see tone and texture changes in the skin before anywhere else on the body. So you'll have people in their late 20s, early 30s coming in with issues around their eyes. And you want to treat them. Of course you want to treat them. But like I said, there's so many obstacles in the way. The skin is so thin. So what I did was in my practice, and exactly what you were talking about was I would have patients that I was treating with fillers that were supposedly quite thin fillers and more designed for those type of areas, not specifically designed. No company's ever come out with a product that said this is specifically for it yet until recently. Um, But I would use thinner fillers over there, and the patient would look fantastic. When patient looks fantastic and they leave your office and you're patting yourself on the back, and then two or three out of every 10 patients come back in four or five months and they're swollen underneath their eyes. But they look perfect when they left your office. It's so frustrating. 
So here are the tips that I can give for people who are injecting those areas is number one, never get a perfect result. A perfect result is going to bite you in the butt more often than not months down the road. Okay, because these products, if you're using an HA-based products, are sponges and they love water. So they're going to absorb at some point. At some point, that person is going to go out and have a, you know, going to have a drink with some friends or is going to cry at a movie or because of a breakup, a social breakup. And the second that there's fluid over there, that product is going to grab the fluid and it's going to overinflate. And that's why you start to see these issues and you see what they call the Tyndall effect with the, the bluish discoloration because it's bouncing blue light. Okay. So we understand that. So number one, undertreat. Number two is personally, and then this is the way that I do it. It doesn't mean that it's right or wrong. It's just the way that I do it. I, I always blend my products around the eyes. What do I do? I give it the drink that it's looking for. So any product, I don't care where it is on the market, and I get a lot of flack from the companies about this, but any product that I use over there, whether it's a product like an HA, whether it's going to be a radius product which i know my friend michael kane uses in a dilute form around the eyes any product that i use there i always give it the drink it's looking for it's the 50 50 blend whether it's saline or xylocaine that i put in there so that i don't get as much swelling even with that i still under treat and then i went back to the lab and i went and started dissecting out eyes the site and periorbital regions to understand why was i getting into trouble once I understood what was happening in that periorbital region, I adapted my injection technique to that. And I've gotten much better results with that as well. Understanding that you don't want to inject into the muscle around the eye. And that muscle is stuck medially over here, right next to the nose, is where the orbicularis muscle is stuck. The rest of the muscle is floating on the roof and the suit. And that's the fat pads that allows it to sort of constrict like a purse string. If you start to inject into them on the bone over here, you're not on the bone, you're in the muscle. And if you put product into the muscle, 1,200 times of squeezing it, that's like squeezing your tube of toothpaste from the middle. It's not going to go this way. It can't because it's all stuck and it balls up over here. Yeah. Once I realized that, I changed the plane at which I was injecting and started to inject just tiny little amounts on the bone. And then the second plane above the muscle, beneath the skin, it's, it's a, it's a, relatively avascular plane that is so easy to achieve with the cannula and painless and then you have to have good control of putting the plunger in your palm i'm giving you all the little tips that i do in order to be able to just squeeze gently slight little bits of product between the skin and the muscle if you do it in a bilayer technique like that you're never putting a lot of product into any one layer and you're going to avoid a lot of those adverse events that are happening. PRP is an excellent thing to use there. PFP, whatever you want to use from the patient's own body, if you want to go ahead and give them a little boost over there, it's an excellent products to use as well. But I think the idea is, is to be very light-handed when you do it, to under-treat, to not put everything in a single layer, okay, but to try to go ahead and to divide it up like that. And, and then, you know, got to be careful with patients who are smokers or patients who have a tendency to swell in that area. But you just, those are patients that I got to be really careful if I'm going to go ahead and treat the teardrop. But it's, it's the first area that's going to show the problems of poor technique or poor product selection. There's no question about it. 
What a great answer. I'm glad that this podcast comes out the day that I'm in Miami talking about how I treat tiredness. So all of the stuff that you said, I'm going to pack into my talk now. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, we wanted, well, I wanted to ask you particularly about what you just said, your blending technique. I mean, right. I don't know anyone in Australia who, who does this blending technique. And, and for people who don't know what we're talking about, you essentially take a filler and you, you connect it to another syringe and you blend it with, with a fluid. And, and sometimes you use right. local lidocaine or, or saline or correct. saline. So uh, yeah, I'm just a witch. That's, you know, the short answer of it is I rarely have just juice in the morning. It's gotta be six or seven juices. That are blended <laughs> together. Just to give you the short version, I guess, as much as I can, when I got the fillers originally in the mid-90s, there was no lidocaine in it. So I had to blend in lidocaine for the patient comfort. And I didn't know how much. So I started using different blends in order to be able to figure out how I could keep the patient comfortable and not alter the, urolo the rheology enough that I was losing longevity or I was losing lift potential. So it took a couple of years to figure that out. And then, of course, we got lidocaine added into the product. But when the lidocaine came out originally, there was still only a thicker product. So I still was trying to go ahead and to blend it down to make it thinner. Now, just about every company has a portfolio of products. So they've done the blending for you. So this is something that I promote and say you should blend. I don't do it for financial reasons to go ahead and to, quote unquote, I hate that word, dilute the product in order to rip the patient off by saying, here's a syringe, but it's really only half a syringe of product and half a syringe of lidocaine. I'm doing it for to optimize the result in the experience. Yeah. And I don't, you know, and that's, that's not the issue over here. So the blending started as a result that I didn't have lidocaine. And then once I started to blend, I started to do my own internal practice comparison to see how much blending you could quote unquote, get away with without really altering a lot of the characteristics of the product. Cause I'm certainly no smarter than the scientist who created these products. And then I found certain blends that work, a one-third blend, which was, you know, adding in one cc of, of, of a lidocaine or saline to two cc's of product or a 50-50 blend where it was one-to-one. -one. Mm. And I found that they just worked very well in 95% of my patients. If they were typical Caucasian patients with the average or thin skin, it worked very well. But if it was male patients or Afro-Americans, if it was Asian patients with thicker skin or sebaceous skin, then I had to go to your product. So it, it, it's not a thing that I have to blend all the time. I am a blender. I, I apologize to the companies for that, but I had no choice when I got the products originally. And then it became a bad habit that I'm having trouble shaking. But, but I still do it around the eyes, especially because of the fact that no matter what they give me around the eyes, I know it's going to want to absorb more water. So I'd rather put in the wet sponge than the dry sponge. Simple as that. So if I can pin you down, what is your favorite product for tear trough and what is your blend? We have a product in Canada that's called Redensity 2, but yeah. it's made by Tioxane. And that's the product that I use for tear trough. Is it the only product that you can use? The answer is no. It's one that I've become quite familiar with and quite happy with. Can you use an Allergan product like Volite or Volbella? Absolutely. And I would blend it 50-50. Again, that's my own personal technique. It's not right or wrong. It's just the way that I do it. Can you use the simple Restylane from the Galderma line that you can use over there? Absolutely. I like that more than I like what's called Silk over here or Restylane Fine Lines. I like the proper Restylane that, that's blended down over there. Bellotero Balance is another one that comes from the MERS company that you can use. I give everybody their fair due. You know, they have products that you can use. 
Um, some are more absorbent of water. They're more hydrophilic than others. And so you got to be a little more careful. But I find that when I do that 50-50 blend, I kind of, I, I widen that safety window of getting that swollen eye afterwards and under treating. Um, so that's also, and we have also a company here called Prolenium, mm-hmm. uh, which is actually the only North American based HA producer. And they have products that are excellent as well, too. So we have a product here called Ultra. It's called Versa in the States. You can use that as well. It's it's like I said, understanding the personality of the product and applying it to the area that you're doing it with is, is really the way to avoid a lot of the issues. Perfect. Now, I would be remiss if we didn't ask the gunshot technique, the one up, the one over, <laughs> the, the Arthur Swift temple technique, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, right. Lots of people obviously want to know how it came about, but also as time has gone on and we know about VOs and blindness and all the rest of it, right. um, are right. you incorporating ultrasound or or have you modified your one-up, one-over technique? And and for people who don't know so, what it is, can just explain it very quickly. Yeah, so the one-up, one-over technique came from being able to treat temples or wanting to try to treat temples and trying to find a relatively avascular location to be able to do it. Again, because I was doing so many uh, anatomy courses and anatomy, you know, I thought I was an anatomist, which I wasn't. Uh, that's why I have Sebastian working with me because he really understands the stuff. But as a plastic surgeon, you say, yeah, I've been in on the face. I know the anatomy. Yeah, well, it's a different story when you really get down to the nitty gritty of it. But when all my dissections that I was doing in the temporal region, I found that there was a zone that goes one centimeter up the temporal crest, which you can find easily right along the eyebrow over here. It's that little ridge that you have, that speed bump. As you go over, you'll feel it from the orbital rim, the bony rim, if you go one centimeter up, and it's from the bony rim, not from the eyebrow. This is where people have been getting a little bit into trouble over here. And going one centimeter back into the temple, okay, parallel to the orbital rim, so it's like a little box, in that area over there was a relatively avascular area. And the reason that I keyed into that was because there was an article written from Korea where they looked at, I don't know, maybe 150 or 200 cadavers, and there was no blood vessels in that area. The closest blood vessel, which was the deep anterior temporal artery, was 1.8 centimeters back. So I found this kind of sweet spot where I could put product down on bone. And when I started to inject the cadavers, I was watching to see where this dyed product that I was putting in was going. It seemed to raise up. It was like trying to stand up if you use the thicker product. And then it would hit its head on the fascia, which is the fascia covering the muscle, the deep temporal fascia, and spread under it. So one injection point with one stab was doing exactly what I was trying to do. It was creating a whole canopy of product from one injection point. It was like I was being a lazy injector, which I love to be. Just put the product and marry the product to the anatomy of the region. Put the needle down on the bone over there and then let the product and the anatomy marry to go ahead and do the whole thing. So that's where the concept sort of arose from. And I started to do it on my patients and started to get really nice, consistent results. The key is, how do you involve ultrasound, or is it 100% guarantee that you're not going to end up with an intravascular problem over there? There isn't an area on the face that you should ever say, I'm 100% safe. Once a needle disappears under the skin, you're not. There's always different um, amounts of of, um, percentages of, of risk that are there, but this was one of the lower risk areas that I felt was there. Does it mean that I don't aspirate? We can get into a one-hour discussion on whether to aspirate or not. 
I think when you're on bone and you can stabilize the needle and you aspirate and you don't get back any blood, does it mean you're 100% safe? The answer is no, but it still puts one of the ducks on the right side of the road so it doesn't get squished. Then you have to inject slowly, always monitoring the skin, never looking at the syringe because you don't look at the steering wheel when you're driving, you're looking at the road. So you inject very slowly and you monitor the skin as you're doing that. It will keep you also out of out of issues and stuff. But that's where the one-up, one-over technique originated. And then understanding the anatomy and the way that Sebastian had it sort of taken it to the next level, understanding the planes that are being accessed by that injection point, it became apparent that you couldn't inject too much product that way. Right. Because of the fact that it would start to slide down, it would be underneath the temporal fascia, right underneath that near the zygoma is the extension of the buccal fat pad, and the product would go right down into the cheek. And I had patients, not patients, but I had a, a particular injector who sent me a picture that I show on my my symposium of a bulge over here. And, and that, that injector thought it was swelling, but it's actually the product that made its way all the way down there. So you're limited in the amount. There's no perfect injection for any area on the on the on the face, but that one up one over gunshot, as they called it, the one up one over technique, um, sort of developed from that. I limited to no more than one cc. In most cases, I'm using about a 0.5 or 0.6 cc of a robust product that's going to try to go ahead and to project a bit, depending on the shape of the temple. And then I'll use other techniques to go ahead and to contour a temple on top of that. I just Actually, in the symposium that I just did this past weekend, I did the one up, one over, and then I went in and superficially did subdermal. And then I went ahead and did that, what I call it, the Coda Fana Diablo, which is putting in that <laughs> bolus way back over here. So you look like a devil to lift the side of the face. I mean, I'll use a number of different techniques. So it's not that one technique is better than another. It's the idea that no matter which technique you use, understand the plane that you're in and understand that you're in the safer zone. Yeah. There is no safe fist, but you're in the safer zone and you inject slowly. Where I found people have been getting into trouble a little bit with this is because they measure it off the eyebrow. Yeah. If you measure it off the eyebrow, my eyebrow, you measure it, it'll be over here. If you take a beautiful female with her eyebrow up over here, you're going to be back over here. So there's not going to be consistency to it. You measure it off the bone, number one. And then you go one up and over. Can there be an aberrant vessel that goes there? The answer is sure, there can be. But if you inject slowly, if you aspirate, if you do all these things and you monitor the skin, you should be okay. Perfect. Right. I hate to tell you, but that was a sh- that was one of the shorter answers. That's great. Or not. <laughs> you, need your, you need your own podcast, Arthur. Yeah. <laughs> Swift Beauty Podcast. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> this is kind of a, a... You guys are doing a great job. I'll let you run with it. <laughs> um, this is a, a big question, but I'm just kind sure. of curious to know your sort of bullet point answer. You sort of said sure. that, you know, we're, we're getting more toxins and we're going to get more longevity and maybe even ones with shorter longevity. What's right. the what's the point? What's um, the point of a shorter to- toxin E? As you were well, saying? what's the point in having a bigger portfolio? I mean, apart from coming mm-hmm. twice a year instead of three times a year, is there a, is there a greater point? So when they asked somebody like myself uh, that they considered a key opinion leader, like what would you look for in longevity for product uh, for a toxin? I said no more than six months. I don't want a toxin that lasts a year because if I have a problem with an eyebrow that drops or something, I don't want to look at it for a year with the patient. I don't mind something that wears off. And we're aging. We're not static creatures. And I want to be able to adapt as the patient matures so that I can change my injection points and go ahead and adapt with them. So six months seem to be Mm. the sweet spot for me. 
The short-acting toxin, the botulinum toxin, is interesting for them because they looked at it as a designer toxin, quick onset, quick disappearance. So that you have an event coming up and you want to, you know, call your your injector and say, "Listen, I have something happening this weekend." They'll see you on a Thursday or Friday, and you look good for the weekend, and then it sort of wears off. So they looked at it from that aspect. They looked at it from the aspect of bringing in people who were toxin phobic and didn't want to have any toxin put into their face, that this was a way to try the pair of shoes on before you bought it, so to speak. And that's the way they were looking at it. I was looking at it from a complete different point of view, where I think it might be interesting. And again, this is is something that just my quirky way of looking at things. I had a physician who called me that made a mistake and thought they were injecting local anesthetic anesthetic under the eye for a blepharoplasty, but actually injected toxin and 100 units of toxin under the eye. Now, 100 units of toxin under the eye, you knew what was going to happen. The patient was going to end up with a hemiparesis. And that's exactly what happened. The patient couldn't move half their face for about four months or five months. Had you had a toxin E, which is competitively inhibiting the toxin A, and been able to inject the toxin E, you would have displaced that toxin A, mm. and that type of problem would only have existed for a week. That's so interesting. It was kind of like a quick antidote for any type of miscues that you have at the time. That's where I was kind of thinking about it being interesting. But obviously, we'll see. I mean, I, I don't know if there's going to be a lot of play on that. If there really is, but they do their marketing research, these companies, and they would know if there's a bunch of people out there who say, yeah, if you can tell me that this is something, if I don't like, it'll be gone in a week. Maybe they have a play there. I don't know. Mm. We sort of uh, covered ultrasound a little bit. We sort of had some commentary around ultrasound, but we didn't really delve into right. it too much. So it's becoming more and more popular. It's beginning more people talking about it, more people starting to integrate it into their practice. There is, there is a lot of people resisting it as well, saying, what's the point? It takes too long. I have to go and essentially learn another language, which is almost <laughs> what it is. Because, you know, if you've never seen an ultrasound before, um, it's difficult to interpret what you're looking at. So Even when you've seen them before, yeah. sometimes it looks like 50 shades of gray. Yeah. And, and I think that the, <laughs> this technology will probably get better because there's a need there. Right. There's a commercial need. So if the commercial, if the money's there, someone will develop an easier product to use. But sort of how have you integrated into your practice? When do you use it? And what do you find the utility is, um, you know, in terms right. of, you know, avoiding complications or maybe seeing where there's filler, patient says it's gone or it's migrated or potentially you get a new patient and you want to see what's not going on before you start Correct. treating them. So, yeah, interested on your thoughts on all those sorts of uh, topics. Yeah, so originally, I mean, when ultrasound came out, uh, uh, ultrasound became not a little more mainstream, but it became more interesting for facial aesthetics, particularly for injections. It seemed to be the perfect fit for not being able to see under the skin. And Leonie Schelke, who was leading, and Peter Veltius, who were leading the charge uh, from Amsterdam and from Rotterdam, from the Netherlands, when I heard about the work that they were doing, I went quite a few years ago, pre-pandemic, so we're talking probably about four or five years ago, to visit them to learn about it, and I couldn't tell an ultrasound from you know from looking at a, a at a, a fuzzy picture. To be honest with you, the learning curve is extremely steep, meaning that you can really pick up very quickly what you're looking at. And what we're really, I mean, it could guide you in your injections if you're going to go ahead and do injections under ultrasound guidance. That becomes a two-handed thing, and it becomes a little trickier especially for novice injectors. Where it have its application, I thought originally, was to have somebody who was adept at ultrasound so that there was a complication and an intravascular event uh, in the community that you could refer that patient 
And then using ultrasound, you'd be able to melt out the product. And I've done that in my practice because I have ultrasound and people know about it in my in my city that they've referred patients to me that they've had difficulties with and I've helped them with them. So I think that's a great adjunct to it. To pre-map the patient, I think that's also pretty interesting too. In patients who come to me who've had significant facial surgery where I'm really worried about the fact that some of the arteries might have been pushed a little bit out of the way or been a little bit different or there might be collateral. It doesn't take that long to put the color Doppler on and be able to see, is there something pulsating deep where I'm, where I'm going to go? So people are, are using that as well. But any new tool that we bring in, here's the bottom line, any new tool that we bring in, you never rely on it 100%. Just because you think there's no vessel there on ultrasound, just because you, you're, you're convinced that there's nothing that's showing, and if you're not really that good technically at it, doesn't mean you can just go in and fire it and go ahead and you feel 100% confident. It's one more duck to put on the right side of the road so you don't get squished, you know what I mean? So I think it's becoming more commonplace. It's becoming you know, more uh, in, in, in individual practices rather than just sporadic practices around. I think, like you said, the technology is booming. Mm. They're handheld now. Yeah. You can get a really good image very quickly to see what the story is. Mm-hmm. Do I use it on every patient? I don't, particularly, maybe because I'm an older guy that I just can't teach an old guy new tricks, but I do use it on patients where I'm going into areas that I'm a little bit more concerned about. I will pre, pre-ultrasound them to make sure that I'm not going to be really, you know, delving or dancing with the devil, so mm-hmm. to speak. So, yeah, you're going to see it more and more practice. There's no question. And they're and they're fairly affordable now. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the handheld ones. Yeah, absolutely. To quote you, you said, ultrasound isn't the wave of the future of aesthetics. It's the it's tsunami a, of the present. It's the tsunami of the present. Yeah, correct. So it's taking over practices. Yeah. I think got, so. You've got to be careful what you say, Arthur, because uh, Jake will remember everything. Uh, I've got it. It's like an elephant. This I'm guy. On yeah, he's got it. <laughs> no, I think I think that's what it is. It's it's a huge wave that's taking over the specialty, and and I think it's just where is its application going to be the best? Uh, I don't think it's going to be an ultrasound guided injections unless they come up with it with a device that's going to be able to simplify that. Mm. But I think as pre-mapping of patients, yeah, it's becoming very, very more mainstream. No question about it. That's awesome. Do you have a particular cannula make and size and gauge that you like to use most often? Um, no, particularly not. I like the ones that are a little stiffer than that are a little more flexible now. Um, but, uh, but I would, you know, the TSKs are excellent. Uh, the uh, the magic needles are excellent. I mean, these are all good. I used to use a lot of 27 and 30 gauge um, cannulas at the beginning, but they're as sharp as needles. So you have to be really yeah. careful with those. But I think now I mostly use 25s and 22s. Right. Fair enough. Now we've just, or we've got a ton of listener questions, but we're just going to limit it to two because I actually think we've answered sure. some. A lot of them we've covered, yeah. Um, Douglas yeah. Routledge, who's one of our. Um, long-term listeners and he's also an ia patron he's from the usa when you're doing uh, a cheek you you talk about sort of a double scoop technique where you do a bolus (laughs) down on the bone (laughs) and then you sort of lift a little bit higher and do an extra scoop of ice cream on top of the first bolus so there you go double scoop of ice cream. what's the rationale and why like what's the rationale behind that because who doesn't like two scoops of ice cream (laughs) two is better than one right (laughs) there you go it's got to be hard ice cream not soft ice cream. yeah uh very quickly, uh, the maxilla is angled. It's a it's a bone that's angled and facing down towards your toes. If you take a look at the skull, you'll see that it's angled. Yeah. So if you put a single scoop or a single bolus over here, you're putting it on a platform that's facing down towards the toes. It will project, but it will project in a downward 
and devouring location. By doing the double scoop, putting the bolus on the bone, releasing off the bone just by a millimeter, mm. lifting your needle up and putting the second scoop of ice cream above the first in a vertical fashion, we found, especially in looking at cadavers and also in the patient result, that your projection is now more anterior and slightly perhaps superior than down. Mm. And I use less product to get the same result. And I'm a miser when it comes to product. The more I have left in my syringe, the other areas that I can treat. Yeah. So that's how the double scoop originated. Okay. Um, we've got a question from Tiffany Sweet, who's a nurse practitioner in Utah. Hi, Tiffany. Sure. Um, what is your VO protocol and your best business advice? She's got two questions in yeah, there. I know. She's stuck them in. Jeez. Let's stick with VO advice. Yeah, that's your best know. VO advice. So, or protocol. VO, just so I... For vascular visit, occlusion. You're talking about vascular occlusion, right? Yep. That's what we uh, we call yeah the VO. So the protocol, I mean, what I would suggest you do is she, the standard protocol at the moment is the one that Claudio De Lorenzi, another Canadian, actually published, and it's the flooding protocol, um, and it's it's done um, with hyaluronidase with a little bit of lidocaine in it. You usually use anywhere between 600 and 1,000 units on a cannula. And then you flood the area that has the libido reticularis, that has the purplish discoloration. That was the standard protocol. Now uh, I've modified it in my practice when I get referrals for that. And I also inject a small amount at the initial site of injection because uh, Leone has shown me that you can have product that's lodged still in the actual wall of the artery over there causing a low flow state, and that helps. If you have an ultrasound, and that's what I just did last week on one that was referred to me, under ultrasound guidance, you can see the stressed vessel and how it's trying to overcome the obstruction. You can go in under ultrasound guidance with a needle, and then you only need about 20 or 30 units of hyaluronidase, as I did on that patient, and everything just perks up right away. So if you don't have an ultrasound in your practice, it's the flooding protocol, and I refer her to, she can look up uh, Claudio De Lorenzi's uh, article, and it will outline it beautifully. Great answer. Thank you. Now, we're going to draw the winner of our amazing competition, Arthur. Oh, my God. I have to turn on my cell phone. You need your phone and go to Google. <laughs> We've never done this before, but I think it will work. Yeah, what could go wrong? We're going to give it a shot. That's for sure. Okay, I'm on Google. And then type yes, in sir. random number generator. Random. Here it is. Yes, and then it you is. go to the first link. Book. So minimum is one. What's your maximum? We had 536 crazy people wanting to come to <laughs> see you. And okay. many, many more people tagging. You want me to generate a number between one and 536? Correct. Just click. Is click that click. correct? Yes. Yeah. Oh, here we go. And the number is? 157. Right. Let's see. I've got the spreadsheet in Let's front of me. Look. I'm going right now. Oh, oh Dr. Jake Sloan. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> okay. We have someone called Magdalena Recchio. She is from Please. Mexico. Wow. Okay. Fantastic. And she is a medical doctor. And let me just read out what she said here because I'm sure this will be a nice comment. I believe Dr. Swift's injection teak is technique is impeccable. He is an excellent injector and he has a gift of sharing his knowledge in a way that is very easy to understand. I think I would definitely take my practice to the next level by lurking with, learning with Dr. Swift and Dr. Cotofana. What a lovely message. It's a great message. That is I'd marry that girl lovely. if I wasn't married. There you go. Wow. <laughs> impeccable. 
Well, Arthur, that was absolutely amazing. It was so nice to talk to you. And it was a I'm, pleasure talking to you guys too. Sorry, you. I, I literally, bye bye. I'm sure your ears are ringing in those headphones, but uh, yeah. No, that's great. No, no short, no short gift for Gab here. Just no, we love it. It's amazing. If we had, yeah. if we had, we could do half day podcasts, so we'd love it. We just, we just keep going. Yeah. So, <laughs> what's your next gig? Where are you flying next, and what are you doing? Uh, so, uh, next gig is going to be in Chicago. We're doing um, a cadaver course, myself and Sebastian, for two days. Fantastic. So that's then we take on. Um, it's a full day course. We're doing two days back to back. Uh, very popular, very very popular. People get their own uh, donor head, and we we appreciate the donors who who um, you know, who supply those, and uh, and we go through all the injection techniques, and then we dissect and see exactly where their product is, and, and we, as Sebastian says, we don't make them afraid, we make them aware. Mm. There's a difference. That's a good <laughs> ending. So thank you for being our 200th guest. Uh, we are absolutely And thank you stoked. for the privilege of being the 200th invitee. That's fantastic, you guys. Continue what you're doing. It's really, really great. Thank you. Thank you, Arthur. Well, good luck with everything. And hopefully we'll get to see you soon. Yes, I look forward to it. For our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our IA Patreon platform for invaluable business and injectable education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information.